We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. We've been talking about these five solas, and, and we begin this week, well, last couple of weeks, we've talked about grace alone. Tonight, we begin talking about sola fide, or faith alone. Faith alone. And, and so, it, and certainly there are passages of Scripture that, describe faith, even define faith, like Hebrews 11.1. 1. But I want you to look at a narrative passage tonight from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, to help us have a better understanding of what is faith and, and what does biblical faith actually look like. Um, when we have a proper perspective, obviously that makes all the difference in the world and how we see things and how we view things. You'll remember kind of set the background for you. Uh, following the Sermon on the Mount, um, we find an example of someone living the Sermon on the Mount. The town of Capernaum was the headquarters of where Jesus did all of his Galilean ministry. It's when walking distance of where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. And so as you hear this story, you're going to hear about a centurion. Now, you can, from the context of the word, pick up something. Centurion, when we talk about a century, a century is a hundred years. A Roman centurion was someone who was in charge of approximately a hundred soldiers. And so we're going to see a faith today that, that amazes Jesus. We're going to see two different sides of understanding what, what true saving faith, number one, what it is not, and then what it is. So, so let's look at this together. Luke chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, it's talking about the Sermon on the Mount, he entered Capernaum, and there a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such a great faith even in Israel. And then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. I can remember reading this passage years ago. And there's a phrase that, that jumped out at me. It's not the same Bible um, that I'm preaching from tonight, but I have it circled in my Bible. And I can remember circling it the first time. And, and I want you to, to go right there with me. When it said in verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he, talking about Jesus, Jesus was amazed at him. And I want to have a faith that would amaze Jesus. A faith that amazes Jesus. But before we get to this man's faith, we've got to talk about some 
flawed perspectives or flawed views of faith. And you see in verses 3 through 5 that when the centurion heard that Jesus was coming, he sent some elders of the Jews to Jesus, asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. And what did these servants tell Jesus? They said, this man what? Deserves to have you come and do this. In fact, they even tell him why he deserves. This man, this man, he loves the nation. He's a giver. He built a synagogue over there. If you kind of are picking up on what they're laying down is, if you're going to do anything for anybody, you ought to do something for this guy. I mean, this guy's kind of a big deal. And, I mean, we've seen what you've done for some other people that really aren't that big a deal. You really need to do yourself a favor. This is a guy you kind of kind of want to have in your back pocket. You'll, you'll, you'll be glad you came over here and, and do this. So let's take some time out of your schedule because this guy deserves it. It is a flawed faith that thinks you deserve God to do anything for you. That is a flawed faith. God owes you nothing. He is no respecter of persons. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. It's not that God doesn't want us to be faithful with our resources. It's, but do you really think that God is impressed with Elon Musk? And this isn't a political. You pick any rich person you want to. Do you think God's impressed with Bill Gates? Do you think God is impressed with LeBron James? And I'm not talking about their physical acumen or their intellectual capabilities. I'm talking simply about maybe their fame, their wealth. Do we really think God is impressed? But yet in the church, we, we do that all the time. Well, now, this guy, he's really something. I mean, I mean he, he's a somebody. God owns a thousand on a cat, uh, the cattle on a thousand hills. There ain't no somebodies in His presence. Think about that for just a moment. There are no somebodies in God's presence. And I'm glad that Jesus let this story continue on because He could have absolutely stopped it there and said, He doesn't deserve anything and neither do you. In fact, you don't even really deserve to be asking me this. The fact that I've even let you have this conversation is me showing you grace. A completely flawed perspective on how God should operate, how God should work. He, should be he believed that the man's works should have bought him this favor. And I've got to tell you, I, I've been convicted in my own prayer life over the years for sometimes there being hints of this in my own prayers. Because sometimes I feel like I need to remind God of some stuff I've done for Him. Well, God, now you know, you know, I'm doing my best, and sometimes I like to remind God that I'm not as bad as some other folks. I mean, you know, God, I've kind of tried to toe the line here, and I'm doing do, doing my best here, and I've got I've, I've I've tried to do a good job here, and I've been faithful here, and and I have to think that when God hears that. It's got to be completely absurd because God is not interested in you coming with your resume because your resume is terrible. That's why we don't come with God. You remember the, the, the story Jesus tells about in the temple and, and here's this Pharisee, oh, thank you that I'm not like 
this publican and then you have the other man and he's beating his breast and he just says, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the difference in understanding how we come to God, a flawed perspective. And then number two, we need to have a proper perspective on ourselves. Look at what the centurion says about himself. He says, don't even trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's somebody that, kind of, that gets it. He gets it. It wasn't, he wasn't the one that was saying he deserved God's favors. People were saying that about him. But when he actually corrected it, he said, don't worry about coming here. It's not that I wouldn't like to have this man healed, but you need to understand that, that I get it. I don't deserve to have you come here, but you don't need to, to come under my roof. And then the statement goes a step further because if you stop there, it would seem like he was just saying, don't worry about doing this. You don't need to do this. You don't need to trouble yourself. That isn't what he said at all. He said, you don't need to come under my roof because you're so powerful, you'd be wasting a trip. You don't have to come here to do this. You can you could do it from right where you're standing. Don't worry about taking the time to come all the way to my house to heal this guy. Just do it right where you are. And the reason this is such a big deal, Jesus just preached a sermon on the mount. And the, the Jewish people that have gathered around him to see him, immediately he says, I haven't found such a great faith anywhere. This is a Gentile it begins to introduce a, a whole new understanding in the Gospel of Luke that the, the Gospel is both for Jew and for Gentile. We often are not a people who see the monstrous nature of our sin condition. And so we have to first grasp, we have to have a proper perspective on ourselves. And then, and then verses 7 through 10, we're told that Jesus was amazed at this. There's only two times, and I put this in the notes, there's only two times in the Gospels where it says that Jesus was amazed. Some of your translations say marveled. Others say amazed. Only two times in all of the Gospels it says Jesus was amazed. Once was at the unbelief of the people in Nazareth. Jesus said a prophet can't do anything in his own hometown. Remember that? They said, who is this? Isn't that? Wait a minute. That's Mary's boy. We know him. They had no faith. He marveled at their unbelief. So this is actually the only time in the four Gospels that it says that Jesus was amazed at something positive in someone. And it says he was amazed about this man's faith. And what God is showing us as we read this passage is that there could be nothing worse than God being amazed at our unbelief and nothing more wonderful than God being amazed by our faith. And the reason that Jesus is so amazed is this man not only is a Gentile, he's a Gentile, so he hasn't had the background that all of the Jewish people have had leading up to this. So that's number one. Number two, his occupation he was a soldier of an oppressive regime in the Roman Empire, and as an officer, he had power. So he was not typically the kind of person that would humble himself. He's not someone who was used to putting himself beneath someone else's authority because he was usually the one giving the orders. Number three, his wealth. Riches are not often a spiritual advantage. In fact, there's a reason that we're told that 
Paul told Timothy that the love of money is the root of all evil. We know that he said it is easier for the camel to walk through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Now, I don't have time to completely exegete that passage, but what, remember what Jesus is saying. Immediately after that, we, the disciples ask him, well, then who can go? Because they thought, much like most of the prosperity hucksters today, that material wealth was a sign of the blessing of God. And if rich people can't go to heaven, and those are the people that are blessed by God, then who can go? And what did Jesus say? With God, all things are possible. Meaning that it is possible for the rich man to walk through the eye of the needle. It's possible for the poor man to come to Christ. It's possible but riches scripturally are often, very often, an impediment because they bring an attachment to the world. So not only that, but then this man has a certainty. He has a certainty about him because his faith is not just in what, it's, it's not faith in faith, it's faith in Jesus. I, I want to spend... Um, and I'm actually a little ahead on time here, and I'm very seldom a little ahead on time. Um, but I want to spend a minute talking about the difference in faith in God and between that and having faith in faith. There is a lot of people that are preaching and teaching a gospel, a false gospel, that is about having faith in faith. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Have you ever heard anybody say something like this? If you just have enough faith. If you just had enough faith, God would deliver you out of that. He'd lift you out of that depression. He'd heal you of that disease. If you just had enough faith, He would bring you out of debt. If you just had enough faith, then your family would be coming to Christ. If you just had enough faith, those bills would be paid. If you just had enough faith and people are buying it hook, line, and sinker, and it is not, it is not just an aberrant teaching. It is a demonic teaching. It is demonic. And here's why it's demonic. Because for me to tell you that what God is going to do in your life is based on a subjective amount of faith means that instead of having faith in the God who works, you have to have faith in your own faith. I don't have any faith in my own faith. In fact, I wouldn't even have faith if God hadn't given me the ability to have it. What little bit of faith I have, I feel like I'm before God and I'm saying, I don't have much, but help me with what I've got. Like the man told Jesus, Lord, I believe, but what? Help me with my unbelief. I pray that all the time. Lord, I do believe you, but I don't think I believe you as much as I ought to believe you. So help me to believe you more. My faith is not in my faith. My faith is in God. And sometimes we need to understand that even when that faith is like a mustard seed. Now, this is misunderstood. We have people telling people, oh, you ought to be casting mountains into the sea. And if you had the, the and, and completely misunderstanding Jesus' point of what he's talking about when Jesus is telling the people that they need to have faith. 
The point is, is that the faith of a mustard seed is a little bitty, he's saying a little bit of an amount. It is not, your ability is not commiserate to the amount of faith. Your ability is commiserate to what the faith is placed in. So if God is going to work in our life, it's not that you have to somehow conjure up more faith. i got to have more faith like some George Michael song from the 1980s. It's that you completely understand that the greatest act of faith that we can show is even when our faith is failing, that God doesn't fail us. How many of you are thankful because you've been through a time in your life where your faith was weak. Some of you have been down at this altar and you've been on your knees and you've been in your bed and you've thought so frustrated because you knew your faith was failing. You knew it was weak. And it wasn't that God abandoned you in your weakest moments. It's probably for a lot of you when you found the greatest grace of God because you aren't trying to muster up more faith in your faith. God met you there. And so when we quit seeing faith is a manipulation of the Almighty and faith is simply an acceptance of who the Almighty is, the gospel changes to what biblically it was supposed to be and is in the very first place. Faith is only as good as its object. Let me, let me point that again. That's, you see that sentence, faith is only as good as its object. People talk about having faith all the time. But faith does you absolutely no good if you're putting your faith in dumb things. Many of you ever sat in a chair that broke? I mean, just completely. The bottom tore out. You went out, went out from under it. Maybe the legs broke on it. Um, that's happened to me twice. You know the little cheap, um, uh, like little chairs you take to a ball game, the fold-out chairs. I had lit one of those. I didn't realize it had been in the back of my truck. I just guess I let it dry rot, and I went straight through. I folded up completely in the middle in the middle of that chair. I put that chair down, walked up, and sat in it with all of the confidence in the world because I knew that chair was going to hold me. Was there anything wrong with my faith? Mm-mm. What was wrong was the object of my faith. I put my faith in something that couldn't hold me up. I think it's really important to point out that often the reason that people say, well, I've given up on religion, well, you should. Because religion will fail you because you've placed your faith in something that can't save. I've done that so many times in my life. It's not just with dumb lawn chairs. I've done it with a lot of more important things than that. And so if we don't place our faith in the proper things, then obviously it's going to fail. So if faith didn't heal the servant, Jesus healed the servant. So we don't rely on faith, but the God of faith. And when we say it is sola fide, or it is by faith alone, if faith had to be perfect, we'd all be in trouble. Think about that for a moment. If the prosperity hucksters are right, 
then how much faith is enough? You got to have more. 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 How much? How much? If my faith had to be perfect, I'm bound for hell. I don't have a perfect faith because I'm flawed. But I have faith in a perfect God. So where I'm thankful for, so thankful for the gospel is that even though my faith is not always perfect, I'm thankful that God even forgives that because grace alone informs faith alone. Amen? That's huge. That's absolutely essential to understanding the gospel. And so when we take a lesson from this centurion, we see in verse 10, Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Obviously, Jesus has the power to heal. That's obvious. Um, sometimes we get in passages like this because I have preached so much against name it and claim it and health and wealth and prosperity. People thought, what do you do with a passage like this, Larry? It says that the man was healed. I have never once told you that Jesus couldn't heal. Ever. I pray every day for Jesus to heal people. And I have seen Jesus do the miraculous. I've seen God do some things recently that are completely unexplainable. But He did that because He chose to do that because He is sovereign and He answered a prayer. He did not do that because someone manipulated Him to do that. He did that because He answered a prayer and He decided to out of His own sovereign will. Let me ask you this, and, and I'm not... I just want to challenge you with verse 10. If it said, then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant dead. Just change one word. Would Jesus be any less God? No. He can heal. I don't know why all of the time that He doesn't. I don't know. But what I do know is this that the point of faith is not always to get God to do what we want Him to do. The point of faith is to get to know the God who can, the God who is, the God who does. And I am so thankful that in my life that God has not always given me everything I've wanted, everything I've asked for, even some of the stuff that I have thrown a fit about. He is not granted and one of the things I know about God is in the midst of that journey, in the midst of sometimes the pain and the heartache and the suffering, and walking with people through some of the darkest times in their life, that sometimes what they find out is they thought they were looking for a blessing, and what they found was the God of the blessing. And when we meet Him and experience the sweetness of what a faith in Him will truly do, it's never going to disappoint. It is faith alone. Christ alone. Grace alone. Scripture alone. To God's glory alone. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for grace. 
We thank you that your grace has enabled us to have faith. And we thank you, Lord, that even in our unbelief, Lord, that you have given us the, the privilege to be able to believe and to, to know you even more. So, God, I, I pray as we think about what it means that faith alone and grace alone brings us to your salvation, that you'd help us to appreciate that more and more. We come to you as an imperfect people with imperfect faith, so we're thankful to have a perfect object of that faith. You are risen Lord and Christ, our incarnate God. As we worship you in this Christmas season, Lord, I pray that we would cast our eyes towards the beautiful gift that you gave of yourself and, Father, that you sent in Jesus. And Lord, we love you and we look forward to everything that you have in store for our lives and in store for this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.